Welcome to a very special Story Story Night podcast featuring Starry Story Night, the Pleiades. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Starry Story Night has been a part of our program before, but we have a new concept for this show, drawing connection between individual stories and the way we draw lines between the stars to form constellations. This is also the first scripted show Story Story Night has ever produced. The script was created from a hybrid of written submissions and in-person interviews. The text is read by the storytellers themselves, and the words are nearly all their own. Recorded live on October 30th, 2018 at Jump in Boise, Idaho, the stars aligned as we heard stories from seven women with music by the Boise Phil String Quartet. Our storytellers are Anne McDonald, Cheryl Slavin, Elizabeth McKetta, Erica Warner, Aaron Riley, Jen Adams, and Sherry Briscoe. Now for stories that shine. It's story time. In the northern hemisphere, the Pleiades star cluster becomes visible to evening observers in October and disappears in April. Treat Orion's belt as an arrow moving from left to right. The next bright star you see in the direction is another bright red-edged star, Aldebaran. Continuing moving your eyes in the same direction and fairly near to Aldebaran, you should see a tight cluster of blue stars. These are the Pleiades, also called the Seven Sisters. According to the ancient Greeks, the Pleiades were seven sisters. Their parents were Pliony and Atlas, who was condemned by Zeus to support the heavens on his shoulders. One day, the Pleiades were walking, and they got the interest of Orion. He took great interest in the seven daughters. The interest was not reciprocated. The daughters ran away, but Orion began to chase after them. After several years, Zeus intervened and took care of Orion's unwanted advances by transforming the women into doves to help them escape. They flew into the sky and became the cluster of stars that today has their name. For most people, six stars are visible, but the seventh is invisible. There are many stories why. Tonight, we have a cluster of stories from seven women. Each voice comes from its own point of light. Each voice is its own story. They are seven stories, and they are one story. One, two, three, four, five, six, Well, that and the Big Dipper, actually, and sometimes I can see Orion's belt. They're the only constellations that I can actually identify. When I was a kid, I went to a star party with my mom on top of the education building at Boise State, where astronomers explained that the Pleiades were used as an eyesight test by Native Americans. My maternal great-grandmother was born on the Cherokee Reservation in Oklahoma. My mother was born in a one-room cabin in the hills of Missouri. I was born here. Like many native tribes, our family followed the land across the nation and always kept our, our eyes on the grand universe above us. I studied all the fairy tales. I read Shakespeare for what I could learn about sisterhood. I was raised learning about Cherokee traditions and superstitions, how my great-grandmother talked to spirits, 
and warned that if a bird flew into a house, that someone was going to die. I only learned what I already knew. Each family can have only one good sister, one sister who is valuable. My mother showed me the wonders of the heavens as we would sit out under starry nights and make wishes on falling stars. Like dancing with the stars, but with magic. The astronomers explained that Native Americans used the Pleiades as an eyesight test. This is a test that I have always been able to pass. I've always taken a secret pride in being able to see the seventh sister in the Pleiades. After I graduated from college, I took a celebratory trip to New York and I went to the Hayden Observatory where Whoopi Goldberg narrated this beautiful presentation. And in it she said, we're all connected because we all have a, a teaspoon of stardust inside us. When I look up at the sky, whether I'm camping or whatever, and I can see all the stars everywhere, the sky filled with millions of bright stars. I feel so small and insignificant, but also part of this bigger thing that I can't comprehend. Stay gold, pony boy. Stay gold. I have been an immigrant in five different countries throughout my life. And there is a lot to be said about the importance of immigrants being more visible in our community and otherwise. But frankly, in my experience, there were times when I was much too visible. When I moved to Palma de Mallorca in Spain from my small town in Colombia, I was 11 years old and I was the only non-Spanish kid in my class. I spoke the same language, but I spoke it much differently than they did. I looked different, I ate different food, and I had different traditions, and it drew too much attention, some good and some bad. I was pointed at all the time, and I just got tired of it. It made me want to withdraw. It made me want to be anonymous, to not be seen. There was nothing I wanted more in my life during my adolescence than to be just one of the crowd, to not be noticed. I wore just black clothing. I never put my hand up, even if I knew the answer. There was even a two-year period when I hid in the bathroom to eat my lunch. Luckily, I eventually found the library. When I went inside, it was completely empty. No one was there. In my school in Colombia, we didn't have a library, so I got pretty excited. Can I get books? The lady was like, yeah, you can get seven if you want. Can I take them home? She said, yeah, just write your name here. Kids never take books home anymore. I found a series called Goosebumps, Pesadillas. <laughs> the books were so tiny and colorful, I would spend all break just reading and reading, and no one would come. It was perfect. I found myself a little corner, and I hid there. From my corner chair, I could see the stars out the window. My sister read. And she could talk about any book over lunch. My mother was an avid reader. My favorite one was called The Ghost Next Door. I still have it. It's in Spanish, though. It's about this girl called Hannah Fairchild. It's the summertime, and she's at home. To pass the time, she makes campfires in the backyard of her house, and she tells ghost, ghost stories to her younger brothers. One day, she starts noticing that everybody's ignoring her, that her friends don't pay attention to her. Hannah overhears one of her neighbors, Mrs. Quilty, talking with a friend. The neighbor explains that the Fairchilds died in a house fire caused by one of Hannah's backyard campfires. In this belief, Hannah enters her home, 
only to find it empty, and then she realizes that she's dead, and she didn't know it. Remember me, remember me, but ah, forget my fate. I met my future husband in the fall of 2001. He was stationed as a young airman in Mountain Hose Air Force Base, Idaho. We had a short romance before he asked me to move to his next base in San Antonio. I found myself getting married to him at a time when most of our friends were getting divorced. But there was another complication. I suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. When our love was new, my husband seemed accepting of my mental illness. Later on, I was harassed by my spouse for my OCD and told, among other things, that I was not his equal. In addition, I had become invisible, or at least out of sight, out of mind, when he was away. And he was away a lot. My OCD manifested as a fear of germs and excessive worrying about the interconnectedness of events. Every thought I had spread into a butterfly effect of other thoughts, where the eventual result was always the direst possible consequence. This made everything, including everyday activities such as driving, a struggle of extreme proportions. In addition, the military lifestyle didn't lend itself to predictability, which was something I desperately needed because of my illness. When my husband and I moved from San Antonio to South Dakota, we had to go on the freeway to get from the Air Force Base to Rapid City. By that time, my mental stability had deteriorated significantly, and I could no longer drive on the freeway. I imagined a Volkswagen Bug, or a Honda Accord, or a Subaru starting up in someone's driveway, ready to venture through the twists and turns of the roads to meet my car in the wrong place at the wrong time. Each lane change, each hesitation, each yellow or red light ignored or obeyed, every move would contribute to the untimely union of our vehicles and death to myself, the other driver, or our respective passengers. By the time we moved to our next base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, I remember talking to my shrink about how I was improving as far as driving and social anxiety were concerned. She replied, you're afraid to go to the grocery store. One afternoon, when my husband was leaving for deployment and I said how I, I didn't know how I was going to live without him, he said, it's not that hard. Just get up every day and take your goddamn pills. One afternoon, out of the blue, I got a call. Hey, Jen, it's Chris. Yeah. I'd met him a few weeks earlier in New York at the corporate offices for Viacom, which is the parent company for VH1, where I had been asked to come in and audition. How do you like to do a little TV show with us? <laughs> Are you freaking kidding me? Yes! Well, sounds good is what I actually said. The other way just happened in my head, except I didn't think frickin'. <laughs> we started filming at the beginning of October. So I'll send you the details and a contract. And Chris told me all about the show. He said, it's a reality TV celebrity competition show. You know, like Dancing with the Stars, but with magic. What's the name of the show, I asked. Celebra Cadabra. <laughs> they already had all but two of the coaches, and they wanted a woman. I guess I should mention that I'm a magician that happens to be female. Uh, they were going to crown the winner best celebrity magician. They would take seven stars and pair them each with a magic coach and eliminate a star each week, pitting one against the other. Seven stars vying for one position. That's what my sister, three years younger, and I were doing, vying for one position. It was impossible that we could both survive. I carry stories about being a sister, but they are stories I can only tell through fairy tales.
once upon a time in the Arabian Nights, there were two sisters, Scheherazade and Danyazad. When the king and their kingdom went crazy and began marrying a virgin each night and cutting her head off in the morning, the older sister, Scheherazade, came up with a plan. She would marry him, tell him a story each night, but not finish it, so that he would keep her alive to hear the ending. But there was a catch. She would need her sister in order to do this. Her sister Denyazad would come, sleep under the bed, and ask each night for a bedtime story, which the king would overhear. The sisters would work together and save the kingdom, one by giving a story, the other by receiving it. The moral seems to be that when the kingdom goes south, you can survive either by telling stories or by hiding under the bed. In ancient Persia, In ancient Persia Aldebaran was honored as one of the four royal stars. It is the eye of the bull in the constellation Taurus. The name Aldebaran is from the Arabic for the follower. It follows the Pleiades during the lightly, then their nightly motion of the celestial sphere across the sky. One. One. Maya. Maya is the eldest sister. The name Maya means mother. At one time, her star shone brighter than any of the other stars. However, the next sister's star, Alcyone, now shines brighter, which some say symbolizes sibling rivalry between the two sisters. My parents love telling two stories about my sister and me as children. In one story, my parents got us bagels, and I took the bagel without complaint. My sister looked at their treats and threw her bagel on the ground. I want that, she said. I'm an only child, and I'm no one's sister. When I'm 10, I start feeling not quite right. I come from a working class, single income family. My parents are devout Catholics, just a few years pre-baby boomer generation. They scrimped everything they had to send me to Catholic school to get a good moral education. In the other story, I was put in my room one Christmas morning for pushing my sister over and making her cry. A home video reveals that I pushed her over because I was playing quietly with my Christmas present a My Little Pony stable, and her little baby foot kept entering the screen and kicking over my neatly arranged horses. When we moved from Fort Collins, Colorado to Boise, it was in the middle of third grade around Valentine's Day. I was five feet tall at the age of nine with a pixie cut, and my name was Aaron, so it was pretty ambiguous. I didn't want anyone to mistake me for a boy, so I set out my favorite outfit, outfit at the time, an oversized pink Mickey and Minnie kissing sweatshirt and matching stirrup pants. On the first day, a smiling boy walked up to me and asked, in a very bratty voice, are you a boy or a girl? My heart sank. And that was the moment I knew I needed to get out of Idaho the first chance I could get. <laughs> In both stories, my sister was the clever one, the charming trickster who found our parents' favor, while I was the gullible one, easily framed. By the time my sister and I were teenagers, an odd divide had set in. My job was to be perfect. Hers was to go her own way. And in this way, we fit into our family's logic.
I did my homework and called my friends and went on dates when I turned 15. I was cut out to be a mother, someone concerned with people. I would follow my parents' footsteps and likely become a lawyer. My sister read. She read Lolita at age 12. <laughs> Brothers Karamazov at age 14. She read books her English teachers had not read, and she could talk about them over lunch. Envy set in. She envied my social skills, my ability to tell stories that made my parents and other people laugh. Her friends often had more to say to me than to her. My sister from a young age had a rich inner and intellectual life, which I envied. Our next decade together became a situation in which only one of us could win, and as a consequence, our home kingdom went south. When I'm not getting into this Catholic school environment that I'm in. I was always searching for something, but I wasn't quite sure what that something was. My eighth grade teacher, who wasn't a nun, but had the demeanor of one, called me up to her desk once and asked, why aren't you smiling? You can be suspended if you don't start smiling more. <laughs> Which made me want to burst into tears. I just remember not ever fitting in. The students at that school were well off. They went skiing on the weekends, played expensive sports, their families drove nice SUVs. My family was not well off. We did not go skiing and I don't even like snow. I was painfully shy and I would have rather not existed, much less be seen. I wanted to be invisible. So I grew up keeping a low profile, and this really worked for me for several years, until I really needed something from the community around me. I was studying abroad in Ireland in college, and it turns out I'm allergic to the beer Guinness. <laughs> so one day, I woke up and I was looking like Rocky with my eyes and my whole face completely swollen. I could barely see. I went to the pharmacy alone and I realized that I had no words. I did not have enough English to explain myself. I did not know how to say allergy, antibiotics, insurance, all those words that you need. And I had no one to ask for help. When I was in college, the first play I was in was entitled Night Sky. It was about an astronomer with aphasia, a speech disorder that affects a person's ability to express and understand written and spoken language. I had no words. It left her struggling to find her place in the world. Though I began my studies as a music major, the student-led production also got me hooked on theater. I took an after-school drama class, although I was not actually in school, as I had recently given up on it and obtained my GED. Even though the class was filled with rich preppy girls, I wasn't uncomfortable. I didn't care what they thought. I didn't care that they thought I was weird and dark, and they made great efforts not to be my scene partner. I'm no one's sister. We were given an assignment to find and memorize a monologue for our final project. I chose Johnny's letter to Ponyboy from the 1967 coming-of-age novel, The Outsiders, by Essie Hinton. She wrote it when she was a junior in high school. It was later made into a film in 1983 starring C. Thomas Howell as Ponyboy. Earlier in the book, Pony recites the poem, Nothing Gold Can Stay, by Robert Frost to Johnny as they're watching a beautiful sunrise after a long, dark night. So I made that part of my final project, too. Nothing Gold Can Stay, by Robert Frost. Nature's first green is gold, 
her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaves the flower, but only so an hour. So leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Dido, especially in her final aria. With her hopes dashed with love for Aeneas, Dido laments as she is about to commit suicide. Remember me, remember me, but ah, forget my fate. Through many subsequent productions and many of my own failed relationships, this lament stayed with me. When I ultimately waxed suicidal in college, I called my parents for help. The beast of obsession had taken home and I could not shake it. I did not tell them of my suicidal thinking, just that I was having mental problems that I could not solve on my own. Several missed opportunities for an accurate diagnosis later, I found myself at Intermountain Hospital. Look, before Johnny died in the hospital, he wrote this letter to Ponyboy. I'm just gonna miss you guys. I've been thinking about it, that poem. That guy that wrote it, he meant your gold when you're a kid, like green. Cause when you're a kid, everything's new, dawn. It's just, just when you get used to everything that it's day. Like the way you dig sunsets, Pony. That's gold. Keep that way. It's a good way to be. I want you to tell Dally to look at a sunset, but I don't think he's ever really seen one. He might think you're crazy, but ask him from me. And don't be so bugged over being a greaser. You still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. There's still a lot of good in the world. Tell Dally. I don't think he knows. Your buddy, Johnny. I had this fantasy that my husband would finally divorce me and I'd get back to performing. It didn't happen that way, of course, but it was a nice dream while it lasted. Remember me, remember me, but ah, forget my fate. I'm sorry, what? Celebra Cadabra. Yuck. I didn't say that. What I said was, did you guys consider the name Star Tricks? I think it's better. Well, Chris said that sounded too much like a porn thing, so. <laughs> First person I told was my boyfriend, a sweet guy from Boise that I had met on the stand-up comedy scene in New York. It was an interesting time because I was talking about wanting to leave New York and so was he, so we decided to pack everything into a minivan, go to Boise and stay with his family while I filmed the show and figure out what to do from there. One road trip later, I was in Idaho for the first time in my life. We unpacked, had some family dinners, and then I flew to Los Angeles to film Celebracadabra, dancing with the stars, but with magic. I knew most of the other coaches, who were all men, and it was kind of like a family reunion. They put us all up in a hotel right next to the Magic Castle, all the Magic coaches, crew, and producer Chris, and I opened my door and found that it was not a room. It was a hotel suite. It was almost the size of the apartment I grew up in. It had a full kitchen, living room, bedroom, and large bathroom, and for as long as I didn't get eliminated from the show, it was all mine. I felt like a star. At the age of 20, right before I turned 20, I made a wish on a falling star to live in Europe. Wheel of Fortune changed my life. I didn't have any money, to travel, but I had the desire, and my mother always said that life was an adventure. Grab hold of the stars and let them take you where they may. 
I did. Later that week, I was walking downtown when I saw the posters, join the army, be all you can be. See the world. It was military week on the game show, and I made the statement that maybe I should join the military. I thought my mom would gasp in horror. No, she did not. She thought that was a wonderful idea. And the month after my 20th birthday, I was outside of Chicago for boot camp preparing for a career in the Navy. I walked in and asked if they could guarantee that I would be stationed in Europe. And they said, yes. <laughs> when can I leave? They said, 30 days, sign right here. So I did. Everyone imagined that they might travel the globe, I being no exception, my first choice being Italy, second Hawaii, and third Norfolk, Virginia, since I had never been back east before. And we're always an absolute logistical nightmare. Mountain Home Air Force Base, Idaho, Cheyenne, Wyoming, San Antonio to South Dakota. We had to go in the freeway to get from the Air Force Base to Rapid City. Our last move involved four bids on houses that fell through in the busy real estate market near Hill Air Force Base, Utah. Mom told me to keep my eyes on the stars, for that was our connection, and I did. Two. Two. The next day, we went to hair, makeup, wardrobe, and then sent to the Palace of Mystery, otherwise known as the big showroom at the Magic Castle, where we would film the Celebrities Meet the Coaches segment. They filmed the reveal of who was paired with who. There was Lisa Ann Walter from Bruce Almighty and other films, uh, Kimberly Wyatt from the Pussycat Dolls, stand-up comedian Ant from Last Comic Standing, Christopher Kid Reed from Kid and Play, Hal Sparks from Queer as Folk, one of my very best friends in magic had made the show. He got Carney Wilson from Wilson Phillips, or she got him, I guess. I don't remember anything after that, because the next thing I know, I heard my name getting called to be the coach of C. Thomas Howell. You mean Pony Boy from The Outsiders? Pony Boy? I can't prove it, but I think my involuntary reaction of gushing about my childhood crush might have influenced them in the name of interesting TV. We were immediately asked to take our celebrities to a private room, yay, <laughs> and begin to work on their first trick. Uh, we got to work and it became immediately clear to me that not only was he married and had children, uh, but he had an incredible work ethic, picked things up so quickly, and was extremely creative. By the end of our coaching session, I looked at him and I said, you're gonna win this. Well, coaches were done for the day. They grabbed the celebrities for a big, quick solo interview with the camera, and I stood off to the side while C. Thomas Howell said stuff like, my coach Jen, she's great. She really broke it down for me, and I just think we gelled well. <laughs> End of the day, we were told that the next morning, hair and makeup was 5.30 a.m., filming to begin at 7. I set my alarm for 5 a.m. I got naked, which was my favorite way to sleep, and for the first time since elementary school, I went to bed at eight.
knowing that only one of us could win. Only one of us could win. The next decade with my sister became a fight to survive. Her win. When I was a senior in high school and she was a freshman, we briefly became friends. We drove around town in my Chevy Blazer, and sometimes she came to parties with me. She was a natural dancer and from her reading had learned how to flirt. I was clumsier, and it was disconcerting to see my friends finding my sister attractive. She was into caving, rock climbing, reading, cooking, and nature. She had an edge and had begun a habit of speaking of women in harsh and uncomplimentary ways. And I could see that in her immature mind, one woman's success equaled another's failure. This extended to home. I still told stories as a way to connect with people. But she had begun interrupting my stories to prove me wrong. When I told the story of running a road race and thinking I might one day run a marathon, she said, what are you running from? When I spoke of a book that I loved and said I might want to study English in college, she proved that she knew the book, and all books, better than I did. When I said I might have children, she said, why would you have kids when you could have a country house? <laughs> when I spent hours in the front yard in deep conversation trying to salvage a high school relationship, she said, why should a relationship be anything but fun? She had beautiful, ferocious ideologies, and my world polarized into two choices. One was my instinct, and the other was my sister's instinct. And what was tricky was that hers felt in many ways right. I didn't yet trust my own instinct, but I was silenced by her public challenges to me. So I stopped speaking at family meals, and in my absence, she rose to fill the space. She grew louder, and I grew quiet. I felt the threat of her, that she had the persuasive skills and beauty that could pull the rug out from under me. So far, I had been the sister telling stories above the bed, but I could see her rising, her hand on my hair, ready to pull me under. I stopped telling stories. I became silent. Communication is the key to being seen. I went back home from Ireland with a new realization. Being invisible is not sustainable. So I decided I will start making myself visible little by little. It was time to start making some friends. And it was definitely time to start learning English. So I will be more prepared when in a foreign country. I started looking around my campus and I realized that my school was full of exchange students from the USA. I thought they might need my help so they will not feel as lonely and lost as I was in Ireland. So I started volunteering for them. When I heard them speak English for the first time, I thought, oh my God, Americans, I understand you. You really open your mouth when you speak. Not like those Irish. A new, <laughs> a new semester started at college, and my volunteer coordinator called me. Hi, Erica, we have a new group. And I said, no, no, I don't want to do that this semester. I wasn't feeling very social again. And she was like, OK. But my mom was in the room, and she asked, ¿Quién te llamó? The university people, I said. ¿Y qué dijiste? Mom, I said I don't want to do that this year. Erika, tienes que salir de la casa. Estoy cansada de verte aquí. Tienes que ir. I don't want to go, Mom. So she grabs, she grabs my phone, calls them, pretends to be me. Hi, this is Erika. <laughs> I changed my mind. <laughs> 
Where do I have to go? Okay, okay, yeah, uh-huh. I'll be there in an hour. Mom, no! Erica, tienes que ir. And she made me go, so I went. That day was the day I met this kid. He had the most horrible clothes I had ever seen. He was wearing jeans, and I had never seen those shoes in my entire life. <laughs> he was wearing red pants that said, boy, say. He was wearing a tank top, a handkerchief in his neck, a hat, and I just remember last night, a string backpack. This person had no problem being the center of attention. And despite his very poor Spanish, with a smile and dance moves, he seemed to get around pretty well. The first time I noticed him, we were in the middle of the street, taking a tour, and he started dancing to Heart of Glass by Blondie. This is my jam, he said. And he dropped his backpack and started dancing. Everybody was looking at him. He was so carefree and so comfortable in his own skin. I was so curious. I started to wonder how it felt to be like that. I wonder how it felt to be seen for reasons that you choose yourself. I wanted to learn how, how to become, become visible. visible. I found a way. When I was 16 years old, I discovered heroin. And at that moment, I was comfortable in my skin and I became visible. By this time, I had dropped out of high school, and I was well associated with the subversive subcultures of Boise's youth. A kid I actually went to Catholic school helped me shoot up for the first time. Stationed in Nuremberg, Germany for two years, I would occasionally find myself wandering out on the cobblestone streets, deserted at night, look up at the dark sky, and notice all of the stars, the Little Dipper, the Big Dipper, the North Star, and I felt comfort when I looked up there because I knew that back home, my mother was looking up at those same stars. And in that moment, we were connected. Why aren't you smiling? Knowing that while I may have been so many miles from my family, when I looked up to the familiar stars and my mother was looking up back home, and gaze at those same stars, in that moment I could feel her warmth in my heart and her spirit surround me. The cosmos was our connection. Whether through gazing at the cosmos, writing heartfelt letters, or talking on the phone, my mother and I stayed close and connected. I had the best time in boot camp. We had three meals a day, got plenty of exercise, attended classes, and hung out with new friends. The powers above clearly overlooked my first two choices, and after boot camp and the two-week two course of knot and heavy line tying, I was headed to Norfolk to join the Navy armed with new skills and a fancy new Chicago boyfriend that I had met while there in boot camp. I arrived in Norfolk in January in the middle of the night. I walked onto the destroyer that I was assigned to and was quickly escorted to the women's birthing area where the sailor on duty shined a flashlight to the top bunk. 
I was to put my gear and sheets down and unpack in the morning. What had I gotten myself into? Fear gripped my whole body. I wanted to go back to my comfortable life. This was way outside my comfort zone, but I had made an agreement with the government and I couldn't go back on that agreement. Three. Three. When my daughter Violet was three, I attempted suicide. More of a gesture than an attempt. I had a bad reaction to some medications that had made me manic and increased my propensity for suicidal thinking. It was then at age 31 that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Between sessions of group therapy at Intermountain Hospital, I had time for phone calls. I picked up the communal phone and dialed my mother's number. I spoke first with my mother and then she handed the phone to my daughter. Mama, you need to come home. My three-year-old was insistent. I miss you, Mama. You need to come home. I told Violet that I loved her and that I missed her very much, but that I couldn't come home yet. I wasn't allowed to be released without a doctor's approval, a psychiatrist's approval to be more specific. They wouldn't let me out until I was no longer a danger to myself or others. And for some reason, people were overly alarmed since I had taken a box cutter to my wrist the week prior. But I didn't try to explain that to my toddler. Instead, I told her that again that I loved her and that my time on my phone was up. It was bad enough that my husband was in Korea and that Violet was already entirely dependent on my already overtaxed mother and grandmother. A nervous breakdown was not on the schedule of events and should not have even been a possibility. Hearing Violet's small voice to tell me to come home when I knew I was still very ill was devastating. According to some versions of the tale, all seven sisters died by suicide because they were so saddened by either the fate of their father, Atlas, or the loss of their siblings, the Hyades, another star cluster in the Taurus constellation. Herwin. The year I leave for college, my sister begins drawing devils on her walls. She begins saying scary things to our mother. She becomes friends with a group of boys who one by one begin killing themselves. She sits on the edge of my bed, tells me she thinks she will die at 26. Then she stares at me with her spooky eyes, exactly like my eyes, but instead of chocolate Labrador, hers are spooky. And she says, I'm not afraid of death. Most people are. It was a challenge. Are you, she was asking, afraid? Yes. Oh, Lord, yes. Terrified, if you please. Uneasy, even just being in this conversation. My mother's terrified, too. My sister begins bullying our younger two siblings saying cruel things about our father in front of us and of all of the family members. She seems to have only any interest in me. She regularly tells my mother that she's a terrible mother in a way that makes my mother cry. She tells each of us that we are less than we think we are. One day, my mother is crying, my youngest sister is crying, my younger brother is crying, and my dad is biting his nails, all because of things my sister has said to them. That night, I am peacemaker. I visit room after room, mother, father, sister, sister, brother, then cycle back. I try to comfort everyone. My sister has a stronghold on our house, for we are all afraid. Nobody wants her fury unleashed, so we all tiptoe, try to make jokes, imitations of our laid-back selves. None of us believe each other, but our levity is a survival mechanism. We all know it, 
and sometimes we talk about it, but nobody knows what to do. I am about to go to college. I can leave town and find my own constellation. Before I go, my sister shows me an essay she has written about me, how I am the person she admires above all others. I didn't know what to do with it. I felt like I was caught in an impossible situation, asked implicitly to choose between loyalty to my mother and to my sister. And I chose my mother because I felt that she needed my protection more and that her loyalty to me was more trustworthy. So I left home, called my mother daily, called my sister rarely. When I came back for Thanksgiving, she wouldn't hug me or speak to me. But when I speak at dinner, tell the family what I'm learning, she tells me all the ways I am wrong. We became friends. And when I was with him, I often found myself in situations when I was the center of attention without me wanting to be. This was very uncomfortable for me. When we started dating, we realized very soon that this whole attention-seeking deal was going to be a big problem for us. If, he wanted, if we wanted to have a future together, I needed to grow out of my fear of being seen. He decided to take action and taught me a very valuable lesson. It was a hot Sunday afternoon in June of 2011. I arrived to my house and found an envelope stuck to my front door. I opened it and there was a note that said, welcome to your very special tailor-made scavenger hunt. You're about to embark on an adventure. Get ready, your prize is waiting. I didn't even know what scavenger had meant, and I had to look it up in my dictionary. <laughs> there was another note. I read it. You will find your first hint attached to the body of a slow animal. In the place you saw me dancing for the first time, I knew the place he was talking about. It's a plaza called Plaza de las Tortugas, Turtle Square. I was like, I'm not going. So I put the note on the table, but then my mom, again, ¿Qué es eso, Erika? Mom, you're so gossipy, oh my God. ¿Qué es? Well, Raymond wants me to go to this weird thing. He says I'm going to find him at Plaza de las Tortugas. I'm not gonna go. Sí, sí que vas. Yo cojo el coche y nos vamos. What about grandma? Ella también viene. So we go to the plaza, me and my mom and grandma. <laughs> and there it was, the beautiful fountain with the little turtles that spit water from their mouth. I wonder which turtle had the hint. I figure I will have to check them all, but unfortunately, he had forgotten about my height, five two, and I couldn't reach them. So my mom got in the fountain <laughs> and picked me up so I could reach, and everybody was staring at me, and I started to touch each turtle until I found, and I started to fill up a piece of paper. I was embarrassed, and I was wet, and I was furious. I opened the hint, and it said, go to the bar with the best ladies' night, 
and a man from New York will direct your next flight. <laughs> My mom was like, ¿Más cosas? Oh, no. Tengo que irme. No puedo dejar el coche aquí. Adiós. <laughs> she couldn't park there, so she left with grandma. And I couldn't believe there were more hints. I had never been part of a scavenger hunt, scavenger hunt, I still can't say it, scavenger hunt before, so I had no idea how long it took to get the prize. I was so angry. I'm trying to make it on my own in Seattle. I had this beautiful job at a Montessori preschool. I was living in my dream city of Seattle, and I was really living. I was gold. I was finding things that I loved. I had dreams of going to the University of Washington. I was surrounded by the beautiful city, and the children I was working with were pretty magical, and all of these wonderful positive influences around me, and I'm no longer insecure. But I had this really dirty secret, and I couldn't manage it. I'd been strung out the majority of the past three years, and I'm often sick. I wasn't able to honestly connect with anybody because I was so strung out and trying to look normal, but really I was falling apart. I couldn't feed my addiction at the same time as pay rent and go to work and school was nowhere close to being on the table. And one afternoon, I was on the rooftop of the smoking patio of the building where the preschool was located in downtown Seattle by myself and unleashed on God. That was my intention at least. I don't know who I was screaming at. Let go of me. You made me like this. How the hell am I supposed to live like this? I was desperate. My addiction was out of control, and I couldn't maintain any part of my life. This God that I remember, I had always had to pray the rosary with my grandma and at school. I loved my grandma, and I wanted to feel the connection that she had. Let go, you made me like this. How the hell am I supposed to live? And there was nothing. I felt no connection at all. I was just alone and completely invisible to the entire city. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. But something is there. Every chance I had, I was off the ship. And over weekends, I would try and stay with friends, either in hotel rooms or someone who had off-base housing. One night, I found myself in the company of some guys I had met through my boyfriend. We had all spent time together back in Illinois. When I first walked in, nothing was out of the ordinary, just some dudes getting drunk on a Saturday night. We were hanging out, but all of a sudden, I found myself in the room alone with them. The door was closed, and the atmosphere changed. It wasn't lighthearted. One of the guys had his hands on my breast. I laughed it off like so many other times with guys in the past, and I swatted at his hand away. When I sat down on the edge of one of the beds, the other guy sat down next to me and grabbed my crotch. Again, I swatted his hand away and I asked, what would your friend think of you doing this to his girlfriend? They made their way to the back of the room and began to whisper. That's when my blood ran cold because I knew that if I had stayed that something really bad was about to happen. So I quietly grabbed my things and I ran as fast as I could to the lobby of the building and I called my boyfriend. And the first thing he said was, well, what do you think was going to happen? Why did you put yourself in that situation? I don't know. 
We were just going to hang out. I thought we were friends. I really thought we were just, just friendly. <sighs> yeah. I ended up calling someone to pick me up and sleeping on an air mattress on the floor of their dining room. I didn't wake up at 5 a.m. I didn't miss my alarm. I was woken up by someone. Someone on top of me with a hand over my mouth, pressing my head hard to the bed and all of their weight pinning my body. The room was dark and I couldn't see anything but shadows. I immediately panicked and tried to scream and move my head to free my mouth. I tried to writhe my body and free myself. I kept screaming into his, this hand while I looked over at the nightstand next to the bed for anything. There was a lamp, a phone, something that I might be able to get to and use as a weapon to defend myself. The more I struggled, the harder he bared down on me. I tore my shoulder. I thought to myself, he's going to rape me. And then I flashed back to the time that I was raped by two men from the neighborhood next to mine. I was 13. It destroyed who I was. It changed the whole course of my life. And I thought, mm, not again. You will not take that from me. I would rather die. And I stopped panicking. And the fear went away. And I felt what I can only describe as calm rage. I stopped struggling. I stopped screaming. And I just spoke to him. He couldn't understand me because his hand was pressing down so hard on my face, but he responded to the quiet in my body and my voice. And even though he kept the pressure on his hand, he spread his fingers out so the sound could come out. So I said, take your hand off my mouth. He didn't move his body, but he moved his fingers a little more to the side. And in the same voice, I said, take your hand off my mouth now. I had his attention, so I kept going calm, slow, and angry, and controlled, I said, look, there is no way you will walk out of this situation a free man. This entire hotel is filled with people that all know each other, every room. We're all here together. So if you get up and walk out of here, I won't scream, and I won't say a word. He didn't move. So I tried something else. I told him something that he didn't know, but something that was true. I have my period. It's amazing how much power this has. <laughs> the entire hotel of allies couldn't get this guy to stop pinning me with all of his weight, but menstrual blood. It was somehow the thing that made him shift the full weight of his body off of me and over to the side, and I took my opportunity. I rolled the other direction out from underneath, off the bed, and ran naked out of the door of my hotel room. And as soon as I got packed, Past the thresh, all of the rage and calm left me, and I just started full-on terror screaming. The closest hotel room to mine right across from mine was Chris, the producer. I banged my hands against his door, and within a few seconds it opened, and as soon as the door opened, I ran inside yelling, get me a robe, get me a towel, something. And in that time, the man who had been on top of me ran out of the room behind me, through the courtyard, and out into the night. There was no filming that day. Lots of pictures, though, and police. Pictures of my hotel room, pictures of the courtyard, pictures of the kitchen window that he had pried open and put a random board up against like a ramp to crawl inside. 
pictures of the makeshift maxi pad I had made for myself out of tissues that had fallen outside of the hotel room covered in my blood. I ran out, and the store was really far away, and I didn't have a car. It is ironic to be humiliated by the very thing that probably saved your life. I returned from further interviews at the police station, and there was Chris and another producer to talk to me. They wanted to know if I was okay. I told them I was really shaken up, but I thought I would be. So the producer that wasn't Chris, Carla, said, okay, but before we do anything else, we just want to bring in our psychiatrist to talk to you, just, just to make sure you're okay. I'm not stupid, but sometimes, after almost being raped, uh, I'm not paying attention so well. And she said it with so much care in her voice that I said, okay. Surprisingly, my command was very accommodating and helpful when I reported to them what had happened. I never felt shamed by them and the two men actually ended up getting in trouble for what they had did, what they did. Um, but where I didn't feel judged or shamed by my employer, it was a whole different story with my boyfriend, who became my fiance, and then my husband in the six months that we knew each other. He made his way to Virginia to his new command pretty soon after my assaults. He took it upon himself to show me how very naive and dumb I was that I couldn't be trusted anymore, and that I needed his help to get myself through this world. That's when my, protect, my protector was also my abuser. The end of January 2010, my mom started having severe back pain. On the, our third trip to the ER, I called my younger sister in Arizona and said, you need to come home, something's wrong. On February 3rd of 2010, my brothers and sister and I stood around our mother's hospital bed, and the doctor said, your mother has an inoperable brain tumor. My mother said, whew, like she was relieved. We looked at her like she was crazy, and I said, Mom, did you hear what the doctor just said? And she said, well, yeah, I thought I had Alzheimer's. <laughs> The cancer was everywhere. It was in her brain, her spine, and her lungs. A few weeks of radiation for the pain followed, and in that short time, I watched the color fade from her face, the hair fall out of her head, and her will to live seep out of the corners of her eyes. Be aware that when a bird flies in a house, someone is going to die. Six weeks later, in mid-March, mom retreated from the battlefield and ascended to the stars. Four. Four. The Greek name Pleiades probably means to sail. In the ancient Mediterranean world, the day that the Pleiades cluster first appeared in the morning sky before sunrise announced the opening of the navigation season.
millions of bright stars, and the smooth water we easily gl glided through was churning up phosphorescence. I had the privilege to sit on the back of the ship one warm spring night. Sadly, that was my best memory of my time in the Navy. I had lost sight of what I had planned for myself. There was no traveling around the world. The ship I was on had just gotten back from a long mission. So the furthest we went out was off the coast of North Carolina. But it was pretty amazing that I, as a 20-year-old, was in charge of driving a multi-million dollar vessel. I walked to the bar. When I got there, the bartender from New York just poured me a beer and put it on the counter with a piece of paper. When I tried to pay, he said, it's taken care of. I was starting to get pretty impressed. I opened the note, another note, and read, now that you're feeling a little bit finer, how about you go to your favorite diner? You have to be kidding me. One more hint. Within 20 minutes, there was a total stranger in my newer, safer hotel room that they moved me to asking me what happened, how I felt, where my head was at. I was honest. I told him, I've been through way worse than this. I'm shaken up, but the best thing right now is if I could focus on the positive, which was the show, and I can see a therapist in my spare time if I have any problems. Okay, he said, thank you for speaking with me. Get some rest. Less than three hours later, the executive producer returned with producer Carla. They had flown my boyfriend in as well. Listen, this is just a TV show, it's not real life. Our psychiatrist thinks you need to get well, so we're pulling you from the show. I'm not sure I said anything. I can't remember, I was in complete shock, but she just went on, but we're still gonna pay you. In fact, we're gonna pay you as if you won the show, so here's a check. Get yourself better, okay? I stammered something along the lines of, I'm fine to do the show, I, I don't want the check. I'd rather do the show and get eliminated in the first week than just to take this and leave. It's just TV, it's not that important. Wheel of Fortune changed my life. So they gave me a check and they sent me on my way. So back, back to, to Boise. Boise. I'd left my apartment, my job, what few possessions I had left, all in Seattle, starting over from scratch and going to kick again. I came back on a whim in the middle of the night with one of those beautiful punk rock boys I used to know from Boise while he had been visiting Seattle. He was newly clean, and we were going to hang out, and we did. After a few days of being in Boise and me being really dope sick, we decided to score, and we were off and running. I was now immersed in the punk scene, but this era of punk junkies were not accepted. The secret remained with me, and now there were two of us. My boyfriend was friends with all of these punk kids, and I wasn't. He made that clear to me. We had to keep our daily heroin habit a secret, and I was reminded regularly that these were his friends, 
that they all knew that I was crazy, they only tolerated me because of him, and without him I was no one. I was surrounded by people and seen by no one. He and I are renting a bedroom, a basement bedroom, from a couple that we both knew, but they're really his friends. They've been clean for a while because heroin is very bad. And we've assured them that we are clean too. I'm by myself in that basement a lot. I can't go upstairs and talk to them or be with the roommates because I don't want them to see my pinpricked eyes. I don't want them to see the fresh scars on my arms where I keep missing. The basement has a futon and a dresser which only has our junkie works in it. And we are sick a lot. And he is dark. It's just me and him, and he doesn't talk much. One night, our roommate couple is asleep upstairs, and he's trying to figure out what we can steal from them so they won't notice, while he's smashing our used cottons with the plunger of an old needle trying to wash out any remaining dope. The air in the basement is stagnant. It smells like socks and dope-sick sweat. I don't remember what I said to him, probably asking him to split the wash with me. I was sick, too. As I remember, he did the shot, but it was really dirty water. He was yelling at me, but in a quiet rage yell. I felt really scared, and I was angry, and my heart was beating really hard from the lack of dope and from nerves. I took the keys to his truck because I was afraid he would drive away and do something drastic. And I went and laid down on the futon with my back to him, willing my pounding chest to settle down and my brain to fall asleep. He was quiet. And then suddenly, he grabbed the pillow out from under my head and began beating me with it over and over and over and over and over again with all of his might. I laid there, I was curled up really tight, my heart was racing, I was trying so hard not to cry, not to yell, not to wake up the roommates. It seemed like it lasted forever. The last time he had hit me had been when we were staying at a squatter house in Issaquah, Washington, and it was an elbow hard to the temple while we were laying on the floor, which was our bed, with the other two squatters who occupied that room. I had to be quiet then too, no one could know. No one heard, no one saw me. This time it was longer. It didn't hurt as bad, but it was somehow scarier. No one was moving upstairs. They weren't hearing us. When he stopped, he was still, almost silently cursing. He walked to the dresser and he picked up the BB gun that we had snagged at a flea market a few weeks earlier. The gun didn't fire well, but it looked like a real gun, and we had got it with the intention that if it got real bad, we could just hold up our drug dealers. He held the gun. He told me I was a stupid bitch, that I didn't deserve him, and he'd be better off dead than to be with me. Then he struck himself in the head with the butt of the gun. Instantly, his bleached blonde hair was marred with dark red blood. He glared at me. He said this was my fault, and quietly stormed upstairs out the front door. I followed him with his keys in my hand, the roommates weren't stirring. They weren't aware of anything going on. No one knew. I wandered through the neighborhood. No one was out on their porches. A few cars were going down the main street, but no one noticed the girl walking around, calling to her vanished, bleeding boyfriend. I don't remember how that night ended. We were kicked out of that house, that basement shortly after. Our secret had been discovered. So Don goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. I began an online support group years ago to tell my friends quite intimately about how life with the mental illness was going. 
When in Utah, I finally started to reveal how I'd been treated and how controlling my husband was. It was suggested to me that I was a victim of emotional abuse. The family advocacy center that I went to on base, unbeknownst to my husband, agreed. They were even worried that he might get violent if I attempted to leave him. So on a Friday, I announced that I wanted a trial separation. I took my daughter out of school in September of 2015. I don't know what I was more terrified of, the act of leaving him or the act of actually leaving. I had an especially hard time driving with my daughter in the car, for I feared her death far more than my own. Knowing that I don't drive well when I am distraught, I thought it best for my sister to pick me up and drive us from Utah to Boise. It is best when you are ugly crying to hello by Adele that someone else is in charge of the wheel. <laughs> my sister was strong-willed to say the least. She could be compared to many things, from a goddess to a hurricane. As little as she is fierce, she knew all too well about what it was like to be mistreated by a man. After all, she was in the midst of her own divorce from an abusive husband. She and I could not commiserate about our own experiences with abuse for the five-hour drive because our daughters were in the back seat. She instead would comfort me as I cried, telling me that I would get through this. You got this, is her mantra. But it would still take many years for either one of us to recover. Erwin. I'm in college, living away from home, but I still have nightmares about her. I'm afraid to be friends with women, and sisterhoods terrify me. I do not pursue friendships with my roommates. I play Division I college field hockey for a semester, quit because I am too lonely. I make no friendship with the other women on the team. They call me the quiet freshman goalie. I avoid the freshman dining hall because I am afraid to speak, to tell stories, for I might be ridiculed. Several boys want to date me, but I'm afraid to get too close to them, afraid that soon enough they will learn that there is nothing beneath the performance of me, that I have no words. I begin to write poetry. I sit at cafes by myself and write my heart into journals. I develop a rich inner life. Meanwhile, at home, I hear stories that my sister is flourishing, that she is coming out of her shell. Five months later, at the end of August, I was in Fred Meyer's grocery store shopping, and my cell phone rang. I didn't recognize the caller. One afternoon, out of the blue, I got a call. Between sessions of group therapy at Inner Mountain, I had time for phone calls. I answered, and the lady on the other end of the phone said, hello. This is Babette Munting. I was your mother's doctor for many years. I said, oh yeah, I know who you are. I recognize the name. My mom had talked about her all the time. Babette said, I don't know why I'm calling you today, but I have been thinking about your mom all day and I had to call you and tell you. I smiled and said, my mother would have called me today. It's my birthday. Babette didn't skip a beat, and she sang happy birthday to me over, the, over phone. the phone. I told my daughter that I loved her and I missed her very much, but that I couldn't come home. My mom had reached across the universe and pierced the veil of death to make sure I knew she hadn't forgot my birthday. But she didn't stop there. It was believed that the veil dividing the living from the dead is at its thinnest when the Pleiades culminates, reaches its highest point in the sky at midnight. The modern day festival of Halloween originates from an old druidic rite that coincided with the midnight culmination of the Pleiades cluster. Five. Five.
My husband introduced me to cocaine, which became our therapy drug. It was wonderful to be able to talk through our issues while high. There was no judgment until the jug, drug started to wear off and then we'd sober and things would turn pretty ugly. This habit ended both of our careers in the military, just shy of the three-year mark. He soon got a job on St. John USVI. And we left, <clears throat> and we left for an adventure in the islands and we were convinced that this would be the thing to turn our marriage around. Islands are expensive and they're small and there's not much to do but fall back on old habits. And after a bender, my husband quite literally kicked the sense right back into my head. I fled to a neighbor's house and called my parents to send me a ticket to Oregon where they were now living. I was ready to go home. Draw. I dreaded the visits home. We are still under her spell, but because she is more charming now, it is easier to trust her and have her betray you, to yank you under the bed just when you thought you were getting comfortable. I have the chance to move back to Texas for graduate school. I choose to stay away further. I'm writing now, finding a way to channel my stories for entertainment into stories that I can try to get published. I'm less charming now, more of an intellectual. She is more like I used to be, and I am more like her. We still cannot both survive when we are at home. Once when I'm in my 20s, I bring a boy home. She flirts with him and offers him a ride in her convertible, and I am left behind, embarrassed again, wondering how I can ever merge my wishes for an unsilent life and my wishes to come home to my family. I bring a different boy home when I wish to be part of my future. I do not want to be silenced now. We are ostensibly grown-ups. My sister has cut her hair short. She has lost her teenage edge. She is no longer long-haired, willowy, wild, and dangerous. Her brown eyes still twinkle, but infrequently. They're no longer spooky, but direct and even, like a Labrador, like mine. We are sitting in the living room before family dinner, which is our battleground. I'm feeling anxious, and my sister knows it. My date and I are sitting on the sofa together. She enters the living room, searches for a place to sit. I offer her a seat in the middle of our love seat. I don't want to come between you, she says. You can never come between us, I say, a little too sincere. She sits and smirks. I just have. All throughout dinner, I am sad, desperately sad, and cannot shake the feeling of having lost to her again. She is happy to have won. She can sense my desperation. She is bright, and her eyes are twinkling, and she is telling my date funny stories about her days at college. She is brilliant. She is telling all the stories, and I am the silent freshman goalkeeper, guarding my survival. I take myself into the bathroom. Buck up, I silently mouth. Stop reddening. I tell my eyes, dry off, shake it off. You're almost 30, get over it. Back at the table, I don't eat much. I have no appetite. She is triumphant as the winningest sister, and she hawkeyes me while I eat. She eats with flourishes, ravens her meat. Mmm, delicious. Mmm, such tender lamb. Why aren't you eating your meat? She wants to know. Pay attention to what's on your plate, I tell her with all the coldness I can frost into my voice. She puts her fork and knife down. You are clearly upset, but I don't know what I've done to upset you. Let's step outside, I say, and get up before I can see whether or not she will follow. Aldebaran, the follower. I walk to the diner. When I enter, the waiter gave me an ice cream and my boyfriend's portable stereo. 
That stereo was one of the many tools he used to draw attention to himself. So I started to get very scared. <laughs> I opened the stereo case and found the next note. This was the last one. My fear was well-founded. Go to the middle of Plaza Mayor and play a good song too loud to ignore. Plaza Mayor is the most famous, most visited plaza in my city. I knew exactly why he was doing this. I hated him for it, but deep down I knew this was good for me. I knew I had to do it. I knew he was trying to teach me a lesson. So I walked to Plaza Mayor during our highest season, and I sat, sat in, the, in middle. the middle of the smoking area. I was in a five to seven day detox center in Seattle when I was 18. In this hospital, the detox patients shared the same space as the pregnant lady rehab center. The staff would take all the patients out to smoke cigarettes four scheduled times a day, and I am smoking my cigarettes, looking at these women who are pregnant and judging them. How disgusting they are. There was one lady in particular. She said she had six kids already. She was eight and a half months pregnant. She looked like she was going to explode, and her baby was going to be born addicted to methadone. She and I both sat there sucking down our cigarettes, me judging her with all of my might. Fast forward to another detox center, a couple of geographical changes, the junkie boyfriend, and I'm in rehab again, where I discover that I'm pregnant. Had I found out I was pregnant before I went to rehab, it would have ended poorly for both of us. I would have tried to overdose. It sounds really awful, but that's where I was. Excessive worrying with the interconnectedness of events. Being pregnant was terrifying. My mother's first words to me were, how could you do this to us? And then she started sobbing. My dad just sat there. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't see that I was pregnant. Until I was seven months along and he couldn't see it anymore. Or he couldn't not see it anymore. The night before I had my son, I had another scream at God session. This time, not on the rooftop in Seattle, but I was pulled over on the side of Hill Road in Boise, Idaho. When I finished my session of yell praying, there was something this time. There was a sense of relief, some sort of connection, and there was peace that washed over me. Six. Six. I hug the stereo, and my whole body was trembling. It took me 30 minutes just to convince myself to take the stereo out of the case. Should I do it? It took me another 30 minutes to just choose a song. Now, which song? I remembered that since I moved to my island, I had never left until my sweet boyfriend took me to Venice. And I remembered that when we were in Venice, he said, this special night calls for a special song. 
So I chose that same song. I had no idea what was going to happen when I hit play. But I wanted to find out, so I gathered the confidence and I closed my eyes and I hit the stupid, stupid button. Strangers in the Night started playing. He had chosen a great place, great acoustics. The whole plaza could hear it, and everybody stared. So I stood up, and I just took the glances, and then I saw him. He was walking through the crowd. He was wearing his fancy clothes, no king. And he was carrying a bouquet of flowers. And he made me dance to the song. And everyone around us started clapping. And he said, see, attention won't kill you. That day, I gained some confidence and realized that being seen is not that bad. And that was my prize. It's my wedding. She misbehaves badly at my wedding. First, she complains to everyone about the date and time, saying it is inconvenient for her work. Then at the reception, a weekend party at our house, we rent bicycles for everyone. We get tickets for an outdoor theater production of Into the Woods. We hire a Basque restaurant owned by our friends to make paella. My sister complains and complains about the bicycles. She doesn't like hers. She needs a different one. About the play, she walks her ticket and instead stays in the hotel room and finishes two bottles of Petite Syrah alone. About my husband, at the paella dinner, she approaches his best friend Mike, who generally will do almost anything to make a pretty girl happy. And she asks him, what can you tell me about the groom? I need some dirt on him to use as blackmail. She smiles her trickster smile, letting her eyes twinkle so that her intentions turn opaque. You cannot tell whether she's serious or joking. The friend, who is loyal, sober, responds to her. You're asking that now. You're a total stranger. You'll have to get me a lot drunker if you want me to spill my best friend's secrets on his wedding weekend. She said, well then, do you like gin? The friend reported all of this straight to my husband. The funny thing is, he added, with some ruefulness, is that after that, the girl just vanished, and I never saw or talked to her again. Is it something I said? Four years after her passing, I published my first book. My mother was an avid reader, and we would spend hours talking about books we'd read. She always knew I'd be a successful author, and I felt bad that it didn't happen while she was still here to see it. But I should have known better. My mother always found a way. The day two other authors and I left for Garibaldi, Oregon for my first big book signing, I got a call as we zipped down the interstate. A friend of mine who's an intuitive called me to tell me she was feeling a presence with her at work. 
a presence that was urging her to call me and tell me that my mother was proud of me, that she was going on this trip with me to the coast. My friend didn't even know I was going to the coast, and she'd never met my mother. They were strangers. Many, many years have passed, and I have made a lot of progress, kind of. I also married that crazy, beautiful guy and moved to his hometown, Boise. I spent that dirty money as fast as I could on whatever and on whoever I could, and then I moved, I moved to Boise. Boise. And made the decision to come back here. I moved in with my mother and my grandmother. I was born here. So now, I work as an ESL teacher, and I have to stand up in front of people every single day. In my professional life, I work with the invisible people, the people that society keeps invisible, legally for privacy, but socially because they are uncomfortable to look at. I am keenly aware of those I see who are holding up signs on the corner, passed out on the sidewalk, those with pin-pricked eyes and scars on their arms, the women who are walking away with hesitation from a screaming man inside of, inside of a vehicle, those people who are uncomfortable to see. The majority of my students are immigrants, just like me. And I work with them to help them to find the confidence that they need and to give them the tools that will help them to be seen in the ways that they want to be seen. And don't get me wrong, every time I'm about to be the center of attention, like now, <laughs> my knees shake and my back is sweaty, very sweaty. But I breathe and I close my eyes, and I place strangers in the night in my head, and I just start shining. My daughter had an adjustment disorder when we first moved that I feel immensely guilty about, but I felt it was far more important to teach her that you can't allow men to treat you the way my husband had treated me. The adventures in Boise were full of family and family drama, which ultimately caused my daughter and I to move into our own apartment. We now live in the Boise foothills in a perfect, tranquil little place. I can see the stars out my window from the corner chair in the living room. I do enjoy looking at the stars. I just wish that I could enjoy them before midnight like a normal person, with the expectation of some form of rest. The moon mocks me from its perch. My cat, Starlight, perches on my chair as I deal with my bouts of insomnia from the bipolar disorder. I wish I could look at the stars without feeling like time's a-wasting. My anxiety still rules me in some respects, and it's often hard to appreciate things such as the simplicity of nature or the complexity of the cosmos. There is only the vast expanse of the cosmos. There is no separation in truth. I have many of my cousins, aunts and uncles, one of my sisters, my mom, and my grandma here. I feel very supported and very valued and very loved. 
With many adjustments to my medications and a great deal of time, my OCD and bipolar disorder are well managed, and my family is proud of me for continuing to share stories about my mental illness. pushed through the veil to speak to me. She let me know she was proud. I take, I take a secret pride in being able to see the seventh sister in the Pleiades, to be able to see the invisible. And this is where it all comes back to Whoopi Goldberg in the Hayden Planetarium and my grandmother's rosary and her god. That little teaspoon of stardust inside each one of us. We all contain the same carbon element that bond us to each other. I remember what she taught me. We are spirit. We don't need a body to communicate with each other. We just need heart. My heart soars on the tail of a shooting star over the vast universe. There with my mother, we are always one, always connected, and always together. Coming back here is a redemption of sorts, a way to prove that I do fit in and I do belong. You still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. There's still a lot of good left in the world. While I was away, Boise grew up a little, and I grew up a lot. I have found amazing people that I have the honor of calling friends, and I feel like I'm part of a community. I spent over a decade wandering to find out that Boise is home. I feel at peace with where I am, and I don't feel the need to sail away. Nothing is chasing me. They actually caught the man that tried to rape me, and I had to face him in court. And it was the first time I had actually seen him. I brought my sister with me for moral support, and after the trial, she said, Jenny, if he would have raped you, you would have had to kill yourself. <laughs> it sounds crass, but he was so scary looking, it was actually kind of funny. Uh, he got put away for seven years. They replaced me on the show with a magic consultant that they had been using, and wouldn't you know it, See, Thomas Hell won the whole friggin' thing. <laughs> I recently went to the Wikipedia page for the show just to see what it said. No mention of any of this. No mention of quietly ushering the victim out the back door through the smoke and mirrors of the magic show, but isn't that what rape culture is all about? Nothing to see here, folks. None of it ever happened. Well, it did happen. 11 years ago, I got fired from my job for almost being raped by a total stranger. Our win. There's a way to end this story, but I don't know it yet. Knowing how fairy tales work, I could see the possible paths. I could become perfect, become a bigger bully, or I could leave this constellation and move on into my own narrative. I could abdicate, take all my stored up light and shine it elsewhere. Fairy tale after fairy tale tells of the girl who learns to shine, the girl who is bullied, but who finds her light. She and I battled through our lives at home about who was Scheherazade, the intellectual and the storyteller, 
And who is Dunyazad, the silent, forgotten sister beneath the bed? She is a mother now, patient and content. I am a mother too, and a writer, a professional storyteller. I have found my pack and my voice, but still, silence is part of my makeup, a deep something I know myself to be. I have survived both above and below the bed, so has my sister. We live across the country from each other, in different houses. We've made different families, worked different jobs. Sometimes we talk on the phone to show each other our children. And in the end, perhaps we both are who we should have been, and it includes parts of each other, flecked onto our souls like stardust. It's the stardust of each other that now amazes me. I'm startled by the ways I'm like an earlier version of her, and the ways she is like an earlier version of me. In Arabian Nights, and perhaps any sister's story, neither could have lived the story they did were it not for the other. They are locked in an embrace, stuck in a constellation. They mirror each other, reflect each other's shine. Both of us, I believe, have survived each other and survived life in part because of what we've learned from each other. We both can say, I have been a silent sister. I have sailed above and below her. I have seen what comes when sisters are taught to view themselves as a cluster instead of individual stars. In both myth and science, the Pleiades are considered to be sibling stars. Modern astronomers say the Pleiades stars were born from the same cloud of gas and dust some 100 million years ago. Although most people only see six stars, and some gifted individuals see seven, the Pleiades is actually made up of hundreds of stars. for Anne Rutledge, this one's for you, Mom. And how wonderful it is that Babette Munting still calls me every year on my birthday. It was only in preparation for this show that I put my name on that Wikipedia page. Celebrity, C. Thomas Howell. Coach, David Regal. Edit, replaced original coach, Jen Adams. I have a tattoo on my arm, right here. It says, stay gold. My name is Anne. Erin. Sherry. Jen. Elizabeth. Cheryl. Erica, I have been a silent sister. I have sailed above and below her. I have seen what comes when sisters are taught to view themselves as a cluster instead of individual stars. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our board of directors and me, Jody Eichelberger. 
We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. This program also receives funding from the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and the Starry Story Night Show sponsor, Everything CPAP. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guests were the Boise Phil String Quartet. You can support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Story Story Night. We are also excited to announce the launch of Story Story Night Live, broadcast at the Kenworthy Performing Arts Center in Moscow, Idaho, starting with our first show of our Brave the Elements flagship season, Carbon, on November 27th.